hey, hey, okay, I'm going to tell you something. Okay, here's my little pet peeve. So my wife works at the hospital, and she's always bringing home whatever nasty, cold, whatever people got, because they don't just stay home and get over it. They go to the hospital, okay? Drugs don't cure viruses. So if you're sick and you got a cold, stay home, suck it up. Don't take it to the hospital, because my wife brings it home to me, and I catch it. Then I'm all irritated. So if you got a cold, suck it up. So... Welcome to Owen. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the community tables around the room. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. Apparently, Sean Combs, he has a droid. He's having a hard time with his droid, and it's not coming up correctly, so apparently a droid is a piece of crap. Uh, so... <laughs> and, ah, see? He's got an iPhone. works perfect. Apple, Apple loves you, apparently. So you download the app, click on live, it'll bring us up by GPS, you'll get the sermon notes, you'll get the verses and the questions on the back of the notes as well. I've got one thing for you uh, as we get going. Next Saturday, we're doing Men's Mo Men of Element, Shotgun Saturday. So if you're a dude and you want to go shoot a gun, never shot one, sign up. We'll give you some range safety, so when you shoot it, you don't blow off your own foot or somebody else's around you or some appendage somewhere of somebody. We'll give you some range safety, and then we will, so, so if target's up, we'll be a whole lot of fun. So if you've never shot a gun and you like doing it, sign up in the back. We'll give you an email this week of when we're meeting here and what time we're leaving. It'll probably take us about four or five hours, and we'll be back, and you can spend the rest of your day not blowing things up. All right, why don't you stand me reading God's Word? <clears throat> if, I, if I cough and have to blow my nose, just go with it. It's like it's not even happening. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 25, verses 39 and 40. And it says, When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, as your people, ask that you would teach us to see the world as you do, that we would do things for the least of these around us, because you do, and that in all that we do, honoring you, you would get great glory by how your children live. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the thoroughly depressing Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations is like a funeral dirge. It, it is sorrow. It's as if you're, you're married and your spouse dies unexpectedly. And you have a funeral for them and you are in pain about this. For Israel, this is the passing of a nation. It is pain and sorrow and grief for five chapters. It is questioning God. It is waiting for someone to step in and say, can I help you? I've heard your cry. In Hebrew, the, word of Lament, the book of Lamentations is called the book of Akah or the book of How. How is this happening? It's from the very first line in the book. And so it essentially starts off as, you know, how are these things happening to us? How, if God is good? and true are we in such a mess and in truth for a lot of us when we get to that place where we're crying out how is this happening to us we really don't want an answer we really just want to be able to cry out how we don't want someone to show up and go oh well this is why because you're dumb and you did this we want someone just to listen to our cry of pain and that's kind of how the book of Lamentations starts but I will tell you how this happened to them historically speaking they are slaves in Egypt 
all of God's Israelite people. And they cry out, how is this happening to us? Can someone see? Can someone come and redeem us? And God hears that cry and he brings his people out of slavery. He leads them as in a pillar of fire and a cloud. He parts the Red Sea, takes them across the Red Sea, takes them to a mountain called Sinai. He gives them a purpose, an identity, and a mission to be his people to the world that when people see those people, they're supposed to see what God is like. They're supposed to hear the cry of the oppressed, the marginalized. That's who they are supposed to be. So God gives them this identity. And then after this, he takes them in. He gives them a country called Israel and a chief city called Jerusalem. And what begins to happen is these former slaves end up building their empire on the back of slaves. This is much like a boy from an abusive home who really wants a girlfriend or a wife one day and ends up getting one and becomes abusive on his own. It's like a girl with an overbearing mother who nags all the time. She says, well, I'm never going to be like that. And then she ends up getting married and she's just a nagging wife and mother. It's like a child who has seen addiction destroy their family growing up and they grow up and become a drug addict on their own as well. This is what happens in Israel. They build their empire on the back of slaves. Now, you get to one of Israel's greatest kings named King David. He has a son named Solomon. Eventually, Solomon becomes an arms dealer. And he has slaves build his military installations and his palaces. Israelites become so comfortable with this idea of slavery that they even have slaves build the temple of God. Now, these former slaves that God brings them out, they have a cry, how are we slaves? Save us. God does. And then they use slaves to build God's temple. Kind of ironic, right? Yes, it's very ironic. And they become also so comfortable in how they're living at this point that preserving their own way of life, that they can no longer hear the crab, the oppressed, and the marginalized. In Jerusalem, it becomes more and more about them and what they have. And so God raises up prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zephaniah, Amos, the eyes bulging, hair on fire, yelling, this is not right. Masses are hungry. You have slaves. This is not what God had in mind when he called you out to be his people. So they start calling the empire on the carpet and saying, you need to shape up. Now today is going to be kind of reflective because you're going to hear a lot of things that sound like, ooh, that kind of sounds like us a little bit, you know, personally and as a nation and as a world and what God calls us people to. Because many Christians today claim that we are God's people and we are. But if you look at what God's people were, they were the ones that were supposed to bless the entire world around them. And what happens when we live just like the Israelites in Jerusalem? God gets put his name in all sorts of awkward positions because he says, you are my people. You are my message to the world. When people see you, they're supposed to see what I'm like. So how you live, people are supposed to see what God is like. And what happens when his people live in any way but the way that actually reflects who he truly is? And what do you do if you're God, which is not a question I ask you a lot, but what do you do if you're God and that happens and your people show everybody in the world everything but who you are actually like? What do you do? Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 20 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, this is their ancestors, the ones that brought them out of slavery, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. These are his prophets because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. That's Jerusalem. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned 
burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. In verse 20, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants, this is the word for slaves, to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. They start off in Israel as slaves and they say, God, save us. Can you hear our cry? And God does hear their cry. He rescues them. They receive a mission and an identity and a purpose at Sinai. Then they get to their own kingdom and they build Jerusalem on the backs of slaves. And God says, this is not right. You're not listening to me. So he disciplines them by sending a king who hauls them off to Babylon as slaves. Lamentations is the lament over that. They're looking back and they are saying, we should have done it so much better. We should have lived differently. God called us to live a certain way, and we didn't. If you have a Bible, open to Lamentations chapter 3. That's where we're at. This is our second week in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 has 66 verses. It's 22 stanzas. 22 is the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So you'll have like the first stanza is Aleph. And you get to the second stanza, and it's Bet or B. The third is Gimel, Dalet, all the way to Tav, which I know you all know right on the top of your tongue, so we're all good with that. Every stanza begins with a different letter. Each stanza has three lines. Chapter 3, verse 1 starts like this. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Again, each one of these lines begins with A. You get to the second, the second stanza, and they all begin with Bet. Uh, or B. If you read this in Hebrew, you would just be astounded because it is poetry and pain going hand in hand with each other. It is astounding. Chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. By what? The rod. The rod. The rod of what? His wrath. His wrath. When I was growing up, even in public school, uh, a teacher or the principal had a paddle and they could paddle you with it. That's how old I am, by the way. Uh, I remember multiple occasions sitting in the principal's office. It was never my fault. I was always innocent. just want you to know this. Hanging on the wall behind the principal was a paddle. If you got out of line, whack. I got to hear the thing move on numerous occasions, and it made this... this you ever hear one of those? Like, it just... Yeah, I don't know if it's like a wiffle ball bat or whatever, but it, it moved, and it, it made noise when it moved. When I was in sixth grade, I was in the principal's office again. Uh, I was living with my dad at the time, and something about staplers and fingers, I don't know. But I was in the principal's office, I'm glared at with those penetrating eyes, they, they look at the paddle, look at me, and she, because it was a woman at this time, she takes that paddle off thing and brings it down the table and just whack! I'm like, yeah, it just scared me half to death. Now, when, when I was growing up, my mom <clears throat> didn't spank with her hand. She, she didn't use a belt. She used a leather strap when she spanked us. In first service, she goes, she goes it, makes, it makes me sound so mean when you say stuff like this. But it's, it's a it's whoosh coming at you. You quickly come to realize as a kid, if you cry faster, they stop spanking quicker, right? But sometimes you get really stubborn. It's like, I can take it. And they're like, whack, well, I am not going to cry. You know, it's like, I, wanna, I want the award for how much pain I can actually take. Chapter 3 begins with, you think getting spanked by your principal or your mom is bad. I have seen affliction. I have been spanked by the rod of God's wrath. And what does that look like? It says, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has driven me away, made me walk in darkness. This is like if I came to you, blindfolded you, spun you, spun you around, sent you in the parking lot and said, go find your car and now drive it home. You'd be like, well, that's crazy. I'm going to get an accident. I can't do that. That's kind of what he's saying. 
He says, I have seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away. I walk in darkness. God's hand is against me. Verse 7, he says, he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Verse 16, he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. This is why we call the book depressing. Jeremiah, the guy who writes this, is known as the weeping prophet. Other prophets got to go and have a little bit of fun, not Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, you don't go to parties, you don't have fun. I want you to feel like I do about my people and what's happening. And if you're already depressed, do not read this book every single week because you're not going to get any better. And yet there are some people, when they read the book of Lamentations, they see this actually as songs of praise. That when it says, God's rod of wrath has been against me, because it goes from that to verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is pain and praise and poetry hand in hand with each other. I'm going to give you three terms this morning and then show you three things that set God off. The three terms actually come out of this line. Because of the Lord's great love. The, the words great love is the Hebrew word said. Everybody say said. Hased. Hased means love, grace, compassion, kindness. It carries the connotation that, that God keeps his word no matter what. The term indicates faithfulness to a relationship. That God shows us grace and love and mercy. Not always how we think it should be, but how God knows it should be. Hased is God's love that moves him to be kind to those he has established a relationship with. In Psalm 1850, it says, He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed. Unfailing kindness is also the word hased. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. The word compassion is the word rahamim. Everybody say rahamim. Rahamim. See, you're very good at this this morning. The root of rahamim is the word for womb. It's the idea that God nourishes and cares for and protects are his people just like a mother does in her womb. God cares for and loves and takes care of those he loves. God has said and Rahamim, and both of these things go together in the midst of his spanking, in the midst of his discipline. He keeps his word, he protects his children, and the guy eventually says, great is your faithfulness. Anybody know what the root of faithfulness is in Hebrew? Amen. Everybody say amen. Ah, oh, that one's easy. We know that one. We hear it all the time. Yeah. And the root of that is amen. So be it. The confusing thing about this chapter is it looks like there's two different gods. There's a God of wrath and a God of love. God of earth, God of love. There's a, what is this? There's a God who punishes and drives away and causes us to walk in darkness. His hand is against us day after day. Then there's a God who is loving and merciful and faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. But we know there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema of Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, we know there is one God. So if there is one God and if he is faithful and loving and nurturing, what in the world sets him off? Like this, why would he exercise his rod of wrath if he is a God of Hased, Rahamim, and Amen? Normal question for today was, if God loves me and cares for me, if God is like a mother to me, in wrath, why does he punish me or discipline me? Well, it goes back to exactly what we talked about in the beginning, what Israel did. And many times you and I become so self-absorbed that we begin to treat other people around us with injustice because we think that we are more important than everybody else. In verse 34, you actually get the answer in chapter 3. It says, To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny a man his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Well, of course God sees such things. That's why Israel is in the state that they are. What sets God off? Injustice, crushing prisoners, denying basic rights, perverting justice. That sets God off. 
in the book of Zechariah, which is written as the returning from exile. Zechariah 7, 8 through 12 says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien. This would be the word for foreigners or the poor. In your heart, do not think evil of each other. In your heart, do not think evil of each other. It says, but they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. What makes God angry? When we practice injustice. That makes Him angry. Now today, you can look at this from a worldwide point of view. How does the world practice injustice? You look at it from the United States point of view. How do we as a, I mean, as, as a country practice injustice? How do, how do we as element, as a community, practice injustice? And then how personally do we as a people practice injustice? Do we reflect God's values or do we seek our own comfort? Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So what are the three things in the text that I want you to ask yourself this morning? There are these three things. Number one is to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land. Crush underfoot all prisoners in the land. The verb to crush means to beat someone to pieces, to reduce them to dust. This has more than connotations of physical violence. This also has other ways where you tear people down emotionally, physically, spiritually. The idea is that when we beat prisoners to death, we violate the justice of God. And the word prisoner is a very broad term. It, I'm not trying to be political here. I always want to preach Jesus and Jesus alone and what God calls us to in the world. But the word prisoner can mean many things. It can mean slave or captive. In Genesis 39.20, it's used of Joseph being thrown in jail. You see it in Psalm 69.33, Psalm 79.11, Psalm 102, verse 20. And these references, it does refer to prisoners. So in one sense, how do we treat prisoners, whether it's Guantanamo Bay or the California men's colony? Sometimes we can trample them underfoot by being overly abusive. But other times we can trample them underfoot by making things too comfortable as well. See, being a prisoner was not meant to be something that was enjoyable. If a, if a prisoner has a better lifestyle than, than, say, a single mom, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that. This idea, though, the, the prisoner is, it's very broad range. It could be anybody that you have control over in your life. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend, a co-worker. It could be a child. In, in Scripture, we are constantly told that God shows no favor to him, the greatest to the least. In Exodus 12:29, when God brings the last and final plague upon Egypt, it says he struck down the first of Pharaoh all the way to the prisoner in jail. Everybody, there is no favoritism. And we are also told that we are all prisoners to our own sin. And yet God shows us, has said, Rahamim, and amen, and sets us free. God cares about prisoners. Now, God takes his exiles, the people in Lamentations, and he actually brings them back at the end of this exile. And in Zechariah 9, 9 through 12, it talks about this, and God makes some promises. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God just promises, I'm going to send a Messiah to you. And this is how you will know when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, when he comes riding on a donkey. God says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Coming back from exile, God promises, I will bring the prisoners home. The question for us today is, in our day, is how do we treat the least of these? 
the people that we have control and power over, the poor, the marginalized, the disabled, your spouse, your because sometimes they're poor and marginalized, and your children, your coworkers, your friends. How do you treat those around you? Do you treat them justly or not? When you have power, how do you exercise that? When we take advantage of others, we are violating the justice of God. The second thing he says is to deny a man a rights, his rights before the Most High. Now, when I read this, I originally have to think, in the original Jewish context, what does this look like? What did this actually mean? Open the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16. And I'll show you what this means, because this is this in the context. Rights before the Most High. How do you judge fairly? Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. <clears throat> and it says this. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you, and they shall judge the people fairly. The words judge here is also related to the word in Lamentations. We're to judge people fairly, getting rid of all our preconceived notions and ideas, and simply judge as God does. It says, do not pervert justice or show partiality, not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice, and justice alone is what he says. We do not judge by skin color. We do not judge by what kind of car they drive. We do, not, we do not judge by how they smell. We do not judge by how they dress. We do not judge by how many piercings they have. We do not judge even by religious preference. You're supposed to judge by what they have done impartially. As, as Christians, we like, the church likes to judge. Uh, people point at us and go, well, you like to judge? Well, everybody likes to judge. But yes, as Christians, we do. We like to point who's in and who's out, who's going to heaven, who's not. Oh, they're Democrats, they're going to hell. Oh, they're Republicans, they're going to hell. Oh, they're Buddhists, they're going to hell. Oh, they're Catholics. That's like breakfast for dinner. We don't know what to do with it because it's like a meal, but we're not really sure. So well, I don't know, you know, oh, whatever. We don't know what to do with that at all. You know, we make all these judgments. You know, we don't know what, what to do with half the stuff, but we have no right to make those judgments. We can argue theologically about all the things we want, but judgment is God's alone. We trust that to God. I, I'll give you an example of, of a bad way to judge. I did a wedding a few years ago for a guy. His name was Hector. We first met. I made tons of judgments about this guy. It was, it was after a service. I'm standing in a crowd of people. Uh, he comes, and I'm making small talk. Hey, he's going. He comes pushing through the crowd. Gigantic guy, like six, eight of a guy, wearing, wearing this goofy shirt, total button-up shirt. Uh, his size, you know, not to mention his demeanor, made me think of Hitman because he's got, like, gold chains, goofy shirt, holding up his pants and doing, you know, like, I don't know, like the gangster walk that's like, I'm coming to, coming to get you. Now, when I saw him coming towards me, I'm like, Oh my goodness. And he comes up and he grabs a hold of my arm. And I'm like thinking, everybody kind of takes a step back and goes, well, what's going to happen here? You know, because I thought that maybe I'd run over his dog and he found me and was going to beat me up, which might be great for church attendance. Hey, come to the church where the pastor gets beat up. It might happen again. Come on over. You know, so <laughs> I was hoping not. But anyway, so, so he's holding on to me like this. And then he starts to cry, which makes everybody go, <gasps> and then everybody starts running away. <laughs> it's like, oh, someone's crying. We're not going to stand around for that. Yeah. People are just weird. So, so I take his arm off, and I put my arm on his shoulder. Like this, and I go, I go, what's wrong? And so he actually told me that his wife told him to come and find me. Well, his ex-wife told him to come and find me. Um, and I go, well, what does that mean, come and find me? And she, he goes, look, my life is falling apart. And she told me I need to come and talk to you. I don't even know who his ex-wife was. But apparently she told him to come and find me. And I will tell you, my judgment of this guy was not good. I judged on all external appearances. If he was coming towards me, I couldn't get away because, well, I would have I run the other way. But I couldn't because there were people blocking me in. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a good thing, but a bad thing is I, I want this would this would have been a denial of rights because I made external judgments. We make far too many judgments based on external criteria. But it also goes the other way as well because God does call us to make some judgments. 
I'm talking with a guy a little bit. Well, I talk with a lot of guys like this, but I'm talking with this one particular one in my office a while ago, and he's living with this girlfriend, and I go, you need to move out. You've got to protect her purity. And his first response to me is, well, don't judge me. I'll tell you, there is a discerning aspect to opening the scriptures. We must open them and, and apply them to us, especially if you claim the name of Christ. So I look at the guy, and I'm like, you know, that's not judgment. That's ridiculous. That's, that's what I said. In humility, we encourage people to live and walk a life with God. We exhort people what righteousness looks like. It looks like Jesus, and Jesus wasn't shacking up. I mean, as an example, uh, I get judged all the time. Don't worry, I, I can handle it. Um, I'm okay. Uh, but I, I have beer in my fridge. I think rum was divinely inspired by God, especially like vanilla or black cherry. I think, I think it's amazing. But this causes a lot of people, mainly Christians, to freak out. Now, biblically, is it okay to drink? Yes. Uh, can we go too far? Yes. Is it a sin to be a drunkard? Yes. Did Jesus drink? Yes. Can we say that everybody who drank alcohol in the history of the, history of the world offended God? No. God gives bookends. You don't get drunk. You don't judge to abstain. So we walk this tightrope. Sometimes, can your friends go too far? Do you got to talk to them? Yes, then you got to talk to them about it. But there's a tightrope of what we judge, what we're not supposed to judge. Salvation is in the hands of God. But we are to call each other to live and walk righteously. In John 5.22, Jesus says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus is our judge. In John uh, 3.17, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So Jesus didn't come for judgment. He didn't come for that, but He came to save. But there will be a time when He judges, and He will be your judge, and He will be very good at it. We are to be a people who know how to make correct judgments and stop judging on all these external criteria and leave certain things in the hand of God, but to call each other to account and to live how God calls us to live. We are to be a people who live with hased, rahamim, and amen. The third thing that he talks about in the text is to deprive a man of justice. To deprive a man of justice. This could be understood as to wrong a person in their cause. This sets God off. The idea is that there's a dispute between two people, and one person spins the truth to make themselves look good or take advantage of the other person. It's like, oh, what happened? Oh, well, they did this and said this. Marriage counseling in my office all the time. Okay, oh, well, they did this. I'm like, really? So, and then I get to half the story, and it's like, Okay, so you're both godly saints and, I don't know, the devil's in the middle going, ah, you know, I, seriously. <clears throat> Everybody spins everything to make themselves look better and to make the other person look bad. In, in Ephesians, Paul calls this a slander and malice, Ephesians 4.30. Slander is, we were fighting, I wasn't winning, now I'm going to get everybody else involved, and you won't work it out, so you get everybody else to be your jury, and you only tell parts of the truth. Ephesians 4.25, Paul says you speak truthfully to one another. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth will help you God. Slander is a bit of the truth which tries to make you look good, and the other person look bad. He says malice. Malice is like the, you're going to suffer, drawer. I don't care if I lose as long as you lose too. Malice is, you hurt me, and now you're going to hurt back until you feel like I do. That's malice. In Hebrews 12, 15, it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is why our eyes must be focused upon Christ and not upon ourselves. When they're focused upon ourselves, we do not practice a said rahamim and amen. We practice belittling those around us. We practice making judgments. We practice making people hurt around us. Let me rephrase these questions so maybe we can understand them in our vernacular. Number one, how do you treat the least of these? How do you treat anybody that you view as less than you, that you have power or control over? 
How do you make judgments about other people around you? How? And the third thing is, how do you treat people when you have a dispute with them? How do you treat them? I will tell you, every single one of us in this room, we have sinned against each other and against God because we have all done this poorly. We have all practiced injustice. In Lamentations 3.40, it says, Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us return. The word for return is the word shuv. It's where we get the word teshuva, which means repentance. It is altering the direction of our lives, coming home to God, His kingdom, His family, His ways. In verse 41, it says, Let us lift up our hearts and our hands. Hearts and hands. This is external and internal, changing how we live. Put our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say. So I'm going to do something with you guys this morning. It's probably the most awkward thing I've ever had you do. And I'll probably find out more awkward things later, so it's not going to be the worst we ever do. But I want you all to stand with me. And I want you to read this. This is like how Israel would have read this as a people, understanding their communal sin before God. And so I want you to, I want you to raise your hands, not over your head, just like this. Raise your hands. And we're going to read this together as Israel would have. We're going to go next 15 verses together. Here we go. Ready? We have sinned. God hates injustice, but our hearts are fickle, and we always and constantly are drawn to injustice. We are pulled from God into injustice. You and I are terrible, but I have good news for you. The writer says, we have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. That is not true for you. It is not true. We have sinned. Don't get me wrong. We've sinned a lot, but God has forgiven because of his great mercy. God sends his son to die in our place so that we might be dearly loved children. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, you have judged. Yes, you have crushed. Yes, you have deprived people of justice. But God seeks to save you not only from his wrath but also from yourself with his hased, rahamim, and amen. In Ephesians 5.1 it tells us, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. Well, what's an imitator of God look like? It is someone that practices, has said, Rahamim, and amen. And if we are going to be his children, we must begin to learn to act like it. Paul goes on and says, and to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus suffers, Jesus died, Jesus rises from the dead. And there are times in your life where you may need to go ahead and lie down and take it and not lash back out. And I will tell you, you know where your justice is? It's at the cross of Christ. 
You know where their justice is? It's at the cross of Christ. Our job is to display the gospel to all people so people see that. It's a said, Rahamim, and amen. This is one of the reasons that we come to communion every week, that we bring you guys to this place, because in communion we remember that God has given to us a said, Rahamim, and amen. That's why you break that cracker. It reminds us of his body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice, reminding us of his blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be brought home, so that we can be a renewed and remade people, so that we can be a people who do have our sins forgiven. And I can be drawn to the grace that Christ calls us to as a people. The band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you guys, if you need prayer, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you are someone who is not practicing has said Rahamim and Amen, and you would like to, if you are somebody who has never known Jesus and you want to uh, meet him and understand the said Rahamim and Amen that he offers to you as a child of his, pray with them. They would, they would love to pray with you about that. Uh, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side one on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. I mean, he gives us a said Rahamim and Amen. I know you're going to walk out of here just with that reverberate in the back of your head. I said Rahamim and Amen. What did you wear in church today? Uh... Has said, I word, amen. amen. <laughs> and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. <clears throat> then there is some food in the back. And we do invite you guys not to just run out of here, but to meet some other people. I mean, maybe at some point we can get you involved in a gospel community, a small group. Because I will tell you, the said Rahamim and amen, it actually takes place in community with other believers. And God calls us to live. And that way we can, have, we can come alongside each other. Again, you know, not in the terms of judgment, but in terms of calling people to live the life God calls us to. And if you're not around other believers, there's no one around you to hold you accountable, and you need that. We all need that, and we all go off the rails, and we end up just like Israel. And I do not want you to end up in a place where you and your life are quoting the book of Lamentations because you've gone so far off the rails because you stopped listening to the cry of your God who has called you to be a people who represent who he is to the world. God has given us great and amazing gifts. He has called us to great and amazing purpose. And we should be those who live that purpose that he has given us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people ask that you would help us to understand your great faithfulness and your great love and your great kindness that you have bestowed upon us. And that we in turn would begin to live that to those around us. Father, I ask that you would teach us to understand how you have first loved us. We would understand that has said Rahamim and Amen. And that as we learn that and understand that, that would change our lives. That it's not just about trying harder to love people, but it is surrendering to the great love you have given to us and allowing that to change our lives so we in turn love those around us because there's nothing else that we could do. It is just who we are and who you've made us to be. So we ask that you would change us and remake us and renew us as you do all the time, that your spirit would so infuse us and fill us that we would overflow with your grace and kindness and goodness, that we would understand the difference of where we are supposed to judge and not judge, what we leave in your hands and what we call people to account on. that we would understand that you, as a God of wrath and a God of love, that your wrath is always for discipline, 
to bring us back to who you made us to be. And that your love actually also serves the same purpose. Thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance and makes us long to serve you more and for you to have greater glory on this planet you have created and peopled with us. Have a show to the ends of the earth who you are and your great love and mercy. Amen.